to whom it may concern, or to the Twin Peaks boys. I have recently listened to this so-called podcast that you did, pitting each David Lynch movie up against each other. I say, dear sirs, are you mad? You cannot pit art against art. And then to do a bracket like what, it's some sort of basketball game? The madness, my friends, is on you. I was disgusted with everything about this podcast. The way you pit them together. Oh, yes, why don't we just have Firewalk with me in the same bracket as Blue Velvet? Oh, great idea. I was disgusted by this whole thing. I have never, in all of my years of a David Lynch scholar, been more perturbed, I say, perturbed with your behavior. I shall never tune into your podcast again. Never. Unless next week is really good, I might have to listen to that. Because what am I going to do in the car? I'm driving around. The traffic is horrible. I tune in. I hear the Twin Peaks boys. It's not so bad. But, you know, but this was too far, I say. I say again, too far. Signed, John Thorne. Who killed Laura Palmer? I don't remember. You can have a funeral any old time. You dig a hole, you plant a coffin. Afraid? I'm gonna turn it upside down! Don't ruin that too! <laughs> Blackfoot legend. Waking souls that give life to the mind and the body. A dream soul that wanders. Let's take you home. Oh. All right, this is Community Rewatch Episode 3. Hey, Brian. Hey, Ben. How are you? Good. It's been a long time. It's supposed to be a monthly Community Rewatch, but it's been a little longer than that. But we're trying to get back into it. And today we've got a great panel, and we'll start off with John. Hi. Uh, yeah, this is John Thorne. I am a co-editor of the Blue Rose magazine. Used to be co-editor of a magazine called Wrapped in Plastic, and I have a book out called The Essential Wrapped in Plastic. So that's me. Hey, uh, yeah, I'm Sam Witt, and I am one of the lead moderators of the uh, Twin Peaks subreddit on reddit.com. Hello, this is Andy Bentley. I've been on the show in the past, and i worked with uh, Twin Peaks on Wrap on all their graphics and their icons. And we thank you for that. Yes. <laughs> You're welcome. And here are the Unseen Players. Hi, I'm Francine the Lucid Dream as Norma Jennings and Catherine Martell. Hi, I'm Bunny Buxom as Lucy Moran, Shelley Johnson, and The Caretaker. Hi, I'm Minx Arcana as Donna Hayward and Josie Packard. Hi, I'm Schaefer the Dark Lord as Sheriff Harry Truman, Special Agent Dale Cooper, Parole Officer Wilson Mooney, Doc Hayward, Ed Hurley, Mike Nelson, Benjamin Horn, and Pete Martell. And we are the Pink Room Burlesque. So this is Community Rewatch episode three, the funeral episode. And you know, John, I, you and I were talking. It's, it is so confusing because I guess everybody has a different interpretation of what episode this is. We do the pilot, episode one, episode two, episode three. But I think Netflix does it differently. They might go with pilot being one. And then you have all the naming conventions. So it is always confusing when we're talking about an episode that we're, we all don't agree on what the numbering system is. Yeah, I mean, a long time ago, we used to call it episode four because we considered the pilot the first episode. But um, yeah, yeah, and then we just started using the script numbering and the script number is episode 1003. So I guess it's the third episode. Yeah, I double checked like a couple times. My 
This is the episode we're doing, right? Yeah. <laughs> I hope I mentioned that I said it's a funeral episode. So if we knew it was a funeral episode. Funeral was a great way to do it. Yeah. 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 Just funeral as a keyword. So this was written by Harley Payton. He was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a Drama. I think it's a great episode. Yeah. For people who are watching in real time, the anticipation must have been through the roof after the last episode, right? We left it off that Cooper wakes up from a dream, <laughs> calls Harry and says, I know who killed Laura Palmer. So it's like, all right, the mystery is over. <laughs> we know who killed Laura Palmer. Uh, it doesn't go that way. What about you, John? Back in the day, did you really think that we were going to find out who killed Laura Palmer? Uh, no, I didn't. But I mean, he was obviously... I remember when it first aired, we were waiting to see what was going to happen because the last thing we'd heard is Cooper say, I know who killed Laura Palmer and it can wait till morning. I think it was probably the first time I ever felt a slight, slight bit of disappointment in Twin Peaks only because the first thing Cooper says is, I forgot. So, <laughs> so it seems like a cop-out, you yeah. know, that, that Cooper would forget. But, you know, obviously they couldn't resolve it in that episode, so they right. had to come up with something. And to Harley Payton's credit, he he kind of dances around that and gets the story going pretty fast. We mentioned on the last Community Rewatch, episode two wasn't filmed, and we learned this from Brad Dukes. Episode two wasn't it was filmed between episode six and episode seven, so being the last episode of the season. It seems so strange in some ways that they film episode one, and then right after episode one, they go to this episode. Interior, Great Northern Dining Room, Day. Dale Cooper at the corner table takes a sip of coffee and orders breakfast from waitress Trudy. Who killed Laura Palmer? Let me tell you about the dream I had last night. Tibet? No. You were there, Harry. And so are you, Lucy. Do you have a sketch artist? Andy sketches from time to time. Interesting. I dreamed it was Deputy Hawk. Find out if Sarah Palmer has had any disturbing dreams. If she has, there may be important clues in her dreams as well. Clues? My dream is a code waiting to be broken. Break the code, solve the crime. Break the code, solve the crime. What does the midget stand for? Just about everything, Lucy. Cooper's saying how like, oh yeah, Harry, you were in the dream and, and, and so are you, Lucy. And it's like, I just watched episode two. It, there's no Harry or Lucy in the dream. I thought he was describing some European pilot stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's what he was. But they didn't have the episode done because Lynch didn't film it for <laughs> weeks on end or so. So they, they were just going with what they thought was going to be in episode two. Yeah, the first time I watched this episode, um, I had not seen the international pilot yet. And I just assumed it was more Twin Peaks weirdness. So I guess it didn't really phase me. You know, that's exactly what happened when we first saw it too. We had no idea that there even was a European ending. Mm. So when it first aired, there was all this description of dream content that made absolutely no sense to us because it didn't describe what we had seen. Well, I mean, describe parts, but not you know, it, it went into different areas than what we had seen the episode before. But obviously, as you say, they had scripted this episode three based on what they knew the European ending material was. They just didn't realize how much they were going to have to edit it down when they got to that later episode filming wise. I was just curious. So knowing that we were doing unseen stuff, I went back to the old, old first DVD release because that gives you that little icon trigger to see some of the um, script things. Oh, yes. And I was curious uh, if, uh, John, you knew what we have here that we're about to talk about is much more robust than 
what comes up on the screen? Were they just kind to? Were they just trying to like summar, summarize what that scene was? I read so all that like, for that DVD. I supplied all that material for the original DVD for the. Wow. Right? You know, and, I thought I might have been asking the right person. <laughs> and um, I forget what they did with it. I honestly, truly, I can't remember the details. I know I gave them essentially the Unseen Twin Peaks material that we had. And then I forget if I edited it down or they edited it down or how they ended up with what was. But that's like the you, you, you press a button and on your screen and, and you get text. Is that correct? Yes. Sort of yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. There's always so yeah. much real estate. Right. And so yeah, so it had to be edited down. There was a lot more material than they could they could put there. We offered to do audio commentary for oh. them online, but they didn't want to do it. So <laughs> wow, Lame. they want to spend the money, I guess. Oh, that would have been awesome. There's one of the, the dialogue here too that where uh, Lucy asks, "What does the midget stand for?" And Cooper just says, "Just about everything." <laughs> <laughs> that dream sequence was shot pretty much by accident because they needed to have an ending for the European market, and so they had this and then so when they're making the series they have this content and they're like why should we throw it away let's incorporate it into the story and what we'll do is we'll make it a dream and so you know they do that they cooper has the dream and then they're basically saying you know sort of saddled with now we have to make some sense out of that yeah. which it never really had any sense to begin <laughs> with it was just sort of and even lynch has admitted that it was just sort of winging it then frost attempts to assign some meaning to it and you know they kind of have to stretch things a bit and and convolute things a bit in order so that that dream will in fact inform the rest of the story so they kind of have to bend over backwards here and there to, to do that but that's exactly what's happening at this point they're they're like okay now we have to crack the code to solve the crime so the dream becomes a code which it never was a code to begin with it was just it was just random stuff yeah i have in my notes here that break the code solve the crime is being Fairly significant in the fact that you all know that, you know, there's debate and there's no right or wrong, but uh, there's this debate of how to watch it. You know, some people watch with, you know, a detective eye meticulously going over every bit of, you know, clue and piece, and that extends to even the third season. Whereas, you know, others side towards the, you know, this is almost like Lynch doing a painting come to life and you're just kind of supposed to soak it in and, you know, just kind of how it, you know, makes you feel. But I thought that that probably him giving that mantra at least not once but twice is really kind of what sent people down, you know, the, the Reddit, you know, kind of whodunit type thread. Got a lot of that going on. You really know yeah. more than anybody about that, Sam. You know, I'm, I'm actually really surprised, even though we're this far out from uh, season three now, just how many uh, posts we still receive with like really well thought out in-depth theories about sometimes just the most minute details like the color of a certain object or the way somebody was positioned in a scene relative to someone else it's, it's kind of amazing people are really intense <laughs> yeah but you know i feel like lynch and frost kind of led the audience to that and they'd let it right in the pilot with james's bike being in the eye of laura palmer i feel like right there and then they were saying yeah you should look at this show differently interior the double r diner Day. Norma Jennings and parole officer Wilson Mooney occupy a booth in the back. Hank's parole hearing is scheduled for Wednesday. Barring unforeseen circumstance, with your full support behind the board, he should be released shortly thereafter. Any questions? No. Comments? No. I'm sure Hank appreciates your unwavering devotion. Now I'll need to check some information. 
You and Hank have been married for... Since high school. There are no children? I can't have any. How would you characterize your current relationship? What do you mean, Mr. Mooney? Are you planning a divorce, Mrs. Jennings? Not a divorce, no. I was kind of surprised to see the line about how she wasn't able to have kids because that's never brought up in the show anywhere. Yeah. Um, and it's it's actually sort of depressing, especially given her relationship with uh, Hank. I thought it also spoke to her devotion to the double R. You know, she can't have children. I agree, a hundred percent. And, and like even even child. the way she acts towards uh, Shelley. I mean, in, so, in some ways, I think sometimes she feels like a mother. It's like her family yeah. at the double R. And even looking at season three, the way that she cares so much about. The, the original double R. I mean, I the think... The pies. Yeah. And, it's yeah. about love. It's yeah. about yeah, family. Interior. The double R diner. Day. A pale and wan Shelly Johnson, newly arrived, sets her purse beneath the cash register. I didn't expect you till after the funeral. I figured you could use some help. Norma pauses, looks beneath the register. She can see Shelly's purse, slightly open. And she can see a brand new handgun inside it. Shelly, what are you doing with a gun in your purse? Nothing. Nothing. Nobody does nothing with a gun. I bought it. It's for protection. Peace of mind, anyway. You know, what happened to Laura? You'd be better off hiring a lawyer. I can't afford one. Well, watch yourself. Understand? Shelley nods, pouts. Norma cases up a little. Careful you don't murder your makeup. Norma grins, slips off toward hungry customers. They scripted the scene that Norma sees that she has a gun, but I think they figured, and they may have shot it, but then they figured later it would be more dramatic if we see it, you know, at the end, um, you know, there's more of a threat involved than that casual conversation between Shelly and Norma. And I don't really like some of the dialogue, careful, don't murder your makeup. Yeah. They can't be beauty queens if they murder their makeup. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting ahead. We got it weeks before we get to the Miss <laughs> Twin Peaks. Months. <laughs> Months. A month. <laughs> Exterior. Leo Johnson's house. Day. Truman and Cooper pull up to the Johnson house. Park the cruiser next to Leo's truck rig. They step out of the cruiser. Truman stops, deeply troubled about the morgue altercation. I can't believe I decked him. It was out of line. It was unprofessional. It was probably illegal. Harry, there are many ways to handle an insult, but sometimes there's just no substitute for a stiff right hook. Tell me I'm not going to get my butt kicked by the Bureau. Albert's been hit before, and he'll be hit again. You'll get your butt kicked over my dead body. (sighs) Look at that. There's a duck on the lake. Fill me in on Leo Johnson. Oh yeah, man. I thought it was hilarious that one of Sheriff Truman's lines was that he thought punching Albert was, quote, probably illegal. Unquote. <laughs> like, he's the sheriff. Um, yeah, you should know yeah, more yeah. than anybody else. This dialogue is kind of basically thrown in other places. That there'll be a point where you know Albert is coming to Cooper saying, "Hey, I wanna, I wanna press charges." And and I think I feel like there's other places where this kind of brought up, so there was really no need for this this part of the scene. I, I still wish we would have seen him say "probably illegal" in the show. <laughs> <laughs> he probably gets into fights all the time. We uh, we've gone past the. Morgue scene, right? Yeah. So just rewatching it, I noticed it's almost like Doc's playing the part of Bones and Albert playing the part of Spock uh, in the old Trek, where he's like, you know, you heartless monster, you just want to, you know, tear this guy open. Uh, you know, right. I just I saw that dynamic, and then it's almost like Kirk coming in uh, when uh, right. Truman 
and Cooper come in. I like that. And Albert is kind of like logically, you can dig a hole anytime you want and put yeah, that body yeah. in. I can't do this, you know, next week. Now, John, you've interviewed Miguel Fiera. Can you tell us what that was like? Uh, yeah, well, he was great. I loved uh, talking with him. And he has a you know some interesting comments about this particular org scene because he, and I guess the writers were, became aware of this as they went along, is that he would often try to find a dude to ad lib, not necessarily ad lib, but try to add something to the scene and expand it or do something with it. And so in this scene, he was not originally scripted to, you know, pick up the drill and, and you know, start turning it on and off and all that. Oh, really? and I think I've got somewhere where he says, says, yeah, okay, what do you guys have here that I can play with? I saw this drill. It's, okay, it's going to make this sound, Cheryl. So he's you know, talking to Cheryl Lee, but don't worry, I'm not going to put it anywhere near you. And <laughs> she was like, okay, I trust you. It's fine. You know, Do whatever you have to do. So he was really kind of in, getting into it and, and having fun with what was there. And uh, so I think the drill idea was entirely his. Wow. Isn't that cool? I think I read somewhere, I can't remember if it was in your article or somewhere else, that it was a lot a lot for him to say at first. You know, like, it was just like, it was almost like a monologue that he had to do. And it was it was a lot to take in at the, the first time he, reading it all. He talks about that, you know, just sort of jumping out of this episode really quick. He had that long, long monologue in the second season premiere where he basically has to recap the entire first season for the audience and for the <laughs> yeah, characters. And, and uh, yeah, he talked about how tough that was. And they, you know trying to get it all in one take what was he trying to do with that drill by the way like another scene that leland's watching invitation yeah, right. to love emerald and jade is on the show and then maddie arrives and i i do love the idea of the, the twin cousin we had a uh, local theater that ran uh season one over two nights and while people they would have like interludes and like people getting settled while they're getting settled, they had, I guess, like a bootleg of like all of the recorded invitation to love scenes because there were ones yeah. I hadn't uh, seen before, and they were just playing those on a loop while people were getting their popcorn. Oh, oh that's, that's awesome. so cool! You can find it on YouTube, the the whole thing. So I mean, that's fine. There's a story out there where it was thrown away the the raw footage of of invitation to love, and somebody got picked it up and saved it and put it on VHS, and now wow. it's available on YouTube. Well, they're a hero. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing about the invitation love, it seems like it's really minor. They did cut scenes from the original script that were scripted, you know, for Invitation to Love, this particular scene with Maddie comes. But it was I think it was deliberate on Harley Payton's part. He he had the scene where Leland and Maddie kind of embrace or, you know, greet each other and there's a scene playing on the TV behind them where you hear one of the characters, I forget which one is Jade, who says, oh, daddy, I was so afraid. I love you, daddy. Yeah. As you see Maddie and Leland oh. Oh. Uh, together. And you know, there was some thought at the time way back then that uh, that there was no Maddie, that that was Laura anyway. That was, you know, that was Laura dressing up as Maddie and, and she had faked her death. And that, that line was cut because it might have hinted too much at the, the idea of that potential plot line that you know, Laura was really disguising herself as Maddie. You know, Madeline Ferguson is based on the Vertigo character, the Alfred Hitchcock film Vertigo, in which right. one of the characters, uh, you know, takes on an alias of a supposedly yeah. dead character. So, I mean, there was all that, you know, intertextual uh, 
possibility there? Are they referencing another work to give us a hint at what's really happening here? Right. And Vertigo, I think one of the characters was blonde and the other one was brunette, brunette. and one of them is Maddie yeah. and stuff. So it's, yeah, it's very similar. There's another scene, of course, uh, Bobby and Major Briggs, where <laughs> Major Briggs is talking about going to the funeral. It's a classic scene. a great scene. scene. Yeah, that's, that's still one of my favorite lines when he yells, I'm going to turn it upside down. Like, I say that sometimes. <laughs> people afraid? Afraid? <laughs> and I feel like I'm just starting to get the sense of Major Briggs being a more thoughtful, insightful person than just a army man in a suit. Yeah. Yeah, he really took a turn because I, th- I think it was in the pilot um, when Bobby was smoking a cigarette or something. He like he physically slaps, slaps Bobby in yeah. the face, and we never see him raise a finger to anyone else the rest of the time. Yeah. Um, Everyone so remembers the big speech in the diner, but I feel like this is the turn, you know, that he's yeah. becoming a different character. Yeah, totally agree. And then Albert gives his findings to Cooper and Harry. And this is another one where the dream becoming a reality about uh, Laura getting tied up and sometimes my arms bend backwards. Do you remember that X-Files episode with um, the clairvoyant? This is the one where, you know, it tells Scully that, you know, she's not going to die. Clyde Bruckman's final. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Remember, she's seeing all that. It's like fat stormtrooper. And she looks over and she sees like a gas tank that's like white (laughs) and... Like, it's like all those thoughts keep coming back to it. It reminded me of that when he's like, Ben's back with both arms. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Nice. Mm. Interior, Hayward House living room, day. Doc Hayward steps into the living room, dressed for the funeral, save for the tie which hangs undone around his neck. Dawn awaits for him. She looks at his tie, manages a small smile. Dad, you're hopeless. Donna knots her father's tie. She does not speak. Her eyes are red from crying. Hayward takes a look at his daughter, consoles. Wanna talk about it? Oh, Dad, I I can't believe they're burying Laura today. It's so final. I think and I think and it just doesn't make sense. Death never does. So what are we supposed to do? I live with death and dying every day. There are times when it's merciful, almost a relief. But often it seems nothing but needless and cruel. It made me furious for many years. Furious and helpless. As you go through life, you learn to accept it. Because we have to. Even when it hurts bad enough to break your heart. My heart is breaking, and I don't know how to stop it. Donna looks up at her father. Her eyes are bright with tears. Father and daughter embrace. If he had given this speech, and then we went to the funeral, and the priest had given his speech about death, I think it would have been probably too much. Um, but I think the scene probably could have worked if it was just like a moment with them, uh, with her tying the tie and them getting ready for the funeral. I kind of would like that aspect. Reminded me a bit of it, the missing pieces scene where he reads the poem. Like you really just get the sense of you know what a thoughtful uh, person Doc Hayward is. Yeah. yeah, I agree. You know, it's interesting. Harley Payton seems to, it, throughout the, the full script, he seems to write stuff, and then it's stuff that he's kind of going to return to again, like the gun comes up more than once. Uh, there's some other stuff like this that sort of comes up again at the funeral. And I think he says in interviews that this was one of the first things he ever wrote for TV. And I think he was sort of overwriting to some extent yeah um, so he made sure he covered all the bases and then when they you know when they got i don't even know how much of it they filmed but clearly he put it all in there and then there were they realized we don't need to do it twice you know we can we don't we can do it one time who makes the point like the gun 
you know, why, why do it twice? Right, and so yeah. this scene is sort of reflected again in the funeral. Yeah. You know, for, for this being like the first, you said it's the first thing he ever wrote for TV, even though he was maybe overwriting a little bit, I am massively impressed. Um, oh, it is. It's a great script. It's a great oh, yeah, piece. Like, they, he, got, I, he got nominated for an Emmy. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's the only writing Emmy nom- nomination that happened, so... Yeah, it's great. Um, like, so I do some amateur screenwriting, and I th- I feel like it's taken me like four or five screenplays to really wrap my head around um, some of the fundamental elements that he was just like breezing through on a screenplay like this. You know, it's pretty amazing. Exterior: Black Lake Cemetery. Day. Mourners step through the trellis into the cemetery proper. Doc Hayward escorts Donna onto the green grass. She pauses, sees Mike waiting for her nearby. Hi. To father. Just a sec. Donna steps away from her father. She walks to Mike. She looks at him, says nothing. An awkward beat. Then... Hey, I'm sorry about the other night. I didn't mean anything. Reaches for her. She pulls away. Hey, I said I was sorry. I don't want to see you anymore, Mike. Please don't bother me again. Mike watches, shell-shocked, as she walks away. Ed escorts Nadine through the cemetery. He sees Donna returning to her father. Go on ahead, Nadine. I'll catch up. I promise. It'll be fine. (sighs) Nadine nods, reassured, moves off. Ed steps towards Donna, intercepts. Hello, Donna. Where's... He's not coming. He wouldn't. Why? Ed can only shrug. Donna sees her father waiting. There's no time to talk. She's upset, tries to hide it, and walks on. Ed! Ed turns, finds Norma standing behind him. She's troubled. Hi. Not the best place to talk. I know. Hank's parole hearing is tomorrow. He could be out next week. Maybe sooner. Ed nods. He doesn't want to talk about it here. She sees Nadine standing nearby and realizes why. Nadine looks nice. Yeah, she's feeling good today. There's sympathy in his voice. Sadness, too. Norma understands. Ed manages a smile and moves off. Ben Horn escorts Leland and Sarah Palmer into the cemetery. Mourners stop and stare. Sarah squints into the sunlight, clutches Leland's hand, and Madeline Ferguson walks behind them, wearing dark glasses. Ben spots Catherine nearby. He nods to Madeline, allows her to escort Leland and Sarah ahead. Ben remains, waits for Catherine to join him. Taking care of the Palmers, are we? It's the only decent thing to do. Had to shut down the mill again. All that grief. Few more tragedies, it'll roll over and play dead. See you at the funeral. Ben and Catherine separate, poker-faced. Exterior, Laura's gravesite, day. Laura was bright, beautiful, charming. But most of all, she was, I think, impatient. Impatient for her life to begin, for the rest of the world to catch up with her many dreams and ambitions. If we appear to put those dreams to rest today, do not believe it. Those of us who loved her, those dreams will never die. They live on inside each of us. In the script, there's a lot going on. There's like all these different side talk. This gets back to exactly what I was just saying. I mean, Harley Payton, he did obviously did a great job, but he's being very ambitious in this scene. He was trying to fit so much in between the characters and keep all of the various subplots and character interactions and dynamic alive in this scene. And I think it was it was just impractical when they actually got there to shoot to be able to take 
coverage of every single character, you know, glancing at every other character and, and, you know, trying to convey all the intricate secret storylines of Twin Peaks all in this one meeting of the town at the funeral. It was very ambitious. And ultimately what they did is they, you know, they discarded a lot of what Harley had written and they, they focused on the sadness essentially of the, the funeral. Yeah, you get a sense why, you know, is it ultimately only ends up being the only scene where, you know, the entire major cast is together. So it's kind of like, wow, get as many interactions in as you can. Yeah, 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 that's true. It is one of the rare times where you get almost the entire cast together. Catherine's basically saying about how, you know, we really want to shut down this mill and a few more tragedies and I'll roll over and play dead. And it seems like so inappropriate. You're at a funeral (laughs) and you're like, oh, good. I hope there's more tragedy and uh, (laughs) they will destroy the mill. and. It's just like, ah. Oh, She's heartless. Maybe because, I mean, we see the actual, you know, show, and it's such a, a, a somber, such a sad moment. And it seems so inappropriate for Catherine yeah. to talk about her business. It seems in character, though. There were other instances of things like that, and everyone's kind of lost in their own stories. And a lot of that was just thrown away so that they were focused on the, the story of what was in front of them. Yeah, I sort of wish we had seen all of this now that I think about it. Like, it would have probably detracted from the sad feeling of the funeral, but it, I think it would have really opened up like a whole bunch of weirdness with the town before we see everything else that happens in the season. I kind of thought the same thing, too, Sam. Reverend Clarence, in the script, there's a little bit more of his speech. If we appear to put those dreams to rest today, do not believe it. For those of us who loved her, those dreams will never die. They live on inside each of us. And of course, I mean, Harry's talking about, I mean, (laughs) about her actual dreams of of wanting to be more and getting older. But I, of course, take it as, oh, dreams and the dreams are inside us. I think about you, John. I mean, that's not how Harley probably thinks. But I kind of think like, oh, are we in this dream world? And are we all living Laura's dream? It's just another example of, you know, the the idea of dreams coming into the story. Someday I want to go track down every time the word dream is used in the entire narrative because it it constantly comes back. That idea constantly comes back, and and it was here again. I'll see you in my dream. A policeman's dream. It's like I'm having the most beautiful dream. Following a dream I had three years ago, the idea for all this really came from a dream. Isn't it too dreamy? Harry, let me tell you about the dream I had last night. In my dream, Sarah Palmer has a vision of her daughter's killer. My dream is a code waiting to be broken. Do you know where dreams come from? The pictures become dreams, but... So what was the end of this dream? Suddenly, it was 25 years later. For the world to finally catch up to her dreams and ambitions. Yeah, I just had a couple things to mention about the Reverend. Uh, First of all, his... uh, I don't know... I don't know if this is in the scripts or anything, but I, I saw it somewhere where his full name is Reverend Clarence Brocklehurst. Brocklehurst. That last name is just awesome. Brocklehurst. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, another thing, like when he was giving his um, eulogy, he mentioned a couple times that, you know, how much he personally was going to miss Laura and that he had, that he loved her. And the first time I saw the scene, I thought he was just going to be yet another person in the long train of people who all had fallen for Laura. So like, mm-hmm. you know, we've got Jacoby and we've got Ben Horn and so on and so forth. And then the priest, you know, mm. <laughs> it was yeah. getting out of hand, man. Exterior, the roadhouse, night. A dusty parking lot surrounds the slightly seedy honky-tonk. Behind it, another smaller structure, the book house. Sheriff Truman and the others arrive in a cruiser and a patrol car. Exit. Cooper takes a deep breath of cool night air. This way. Truman leads Cooper towards the book house. 
How long have you been sheriff, Harry? Five years. How long have you been meeting here? Longer than that. It's a funny thing. Seems like every time you solve a mystery, there's another one right behind it. Cooper smiles. He can appreciate that sort of thinking. Truman mentions that he's been sheriff for five years. I actually would think he would have been sheriff forever. Like, he seems like he's just been doing the job. Who was before him? Wasn't it mentioned at some point in one of Mark Frost's uh, books that he put out? Wasn't it his dad? Like, it was like... Oh, it was like a family thing. Right. Interior. Blue Pine Lodge Kitchen. Night. Lights are low. A small table has been set with silver, candles, and white linen. A romantic supper for two. Josie wears a silk robe, something sheer beneath it. Sheriff Truman wears an ardent expression of a man in love. Pete steps into view, carrying dinner on a large platter. Pan-fried rainbow. Caught him this morning. Pete serves the trout to each. Thank you, Pete. It's nothing. Old family recipe. Truman pours a little wine. Offers. Pour you a glass, Pete? No, no, you kids enjoy. Never mind the dishes. We'll get them later. Heart of gold, old Pete. Yes, he is. Josie, what's wrong? Nothing. Nothing. When Andrew died, I was so alone. I couldn't think. I didn't know what to do. Catherine said she would help me, and Ben would help me too. Ben and Catherine. They lied to me. They didn't care about Andrew. They didn't care about me. All they want is to take the mill away from me. I have never said this before to anyone. Harry, I believe Andrew's death was not an accident. And I believe they will try to kill me, too. Josie. Josie, nothing's gonna happen to you. Not now. Not ever. I'll make damn sure of it. Oh, Harry. Truman kisses her gently. Josie sighs, returning his kiss with greater fervor. They settle into a long embrace, whisper between kisses. You don't have to be afraid. Days like today, death feels like the biggest thing in the world. But it's not, Josie. Not for us. I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of losing you. A beat. Josie begins to recite while trembling in his arms. All things, howsoever they flourish, return from the root from which they grew. This return to the root is called quietness. Quietness is called submission to fate. What is submitted to fate has become part of the always so. To know the always so is to be illumined. Not to know it means to go blindly to disaster. He who knows the always so has room in him for everything. He who has room in him for everything is without prejudice. To be without prejudice is to be kingly. To be kingly is to be of heaven. To be of heaven is to be in Tao. Tao is forever, and he that possesses it, though his body ceases, is not destroyed. It's a poem that she recites uh, from Tao Te Ching. Uh, which is like a classic piece of Chinese literature from somewhere around the 4th century BC. It's like considered a fundamental Taoist text. I'm sort of glad they cut it because it's like kind of clunky and awkward. Hmm. Um, But it is kind of an interesting thing that she did. I think it would have been out of character, uh, ultimately. Of course, at this point, they didn't know. Yeah. It's just like with Truman being, you know, sheriff for five years and some of this other stuff. They they didn't have the backstory figured out, nor did they really know exactly where they might be going with everything. So Josie here is scripted as being kind of a stronger character and having a deeper bond with Truman. But we know, you know, that she is duplicitous. I think this would have gone against somewhat against that character. She wouldn't have been so honorable and upright, I guess, as they were maybe depicting her here. So taking it out, uh, you know, obviously allowed them to follow that other path. 
It's a good point. Mm. And it seems like looking at the script, there was so many, like all of Twin Peaks seems to be reflecting on death. Like you have all these characters who are like, you know, this is what I think right. about death. And Heavy handed. Maybe it is heavy handed. To have that many monologues that. about right. death. Exterior, Black Lake Cemetery, night. Cooper stands at the cemetery, a night wind howling about him. He peers into the dark, Laura's grave in the distance. The land of the dead. A beat, then. Can you hear him? Cooper turns to find an old caretaker at his side, gazing out into the night. It's it's the metal in the wood, I guess. Some caskets, you stick them in the ground, and the wood starts to expand, starts to rub against that metal. And if it rubs just so, you get a strange sort of sound. If the night's just right and the wood, teak and brass are the best. Well, it's like music. You can almost hear the caskets singing. Needless to say, it's a notion Cooper finds fascinating. Cooper and the caretaker. And the caretaker just talks about, can you hear him? And he's like, oh, it's dude, almost like, can you hear the so sounds? Cool. <laughs> can you hear the sounds? And the noises, the wood and the metal, and the, it, caskets. the caskets are singing. That's Man, I weird. wish we would have seen this. This was like, of all of these unseen scenes, this was the most eerie and cool uh, bits of dialogue from the entire thing, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Very. I, I agree. I think if, if I had, could pick one of the scenes of this entire you know script that, that didn't make it would be this one. I can just imagine how well done it could have been. You know, Cooper at night in a cemetery and the caretaker, who knows how they would have cast that caretaker character as well. Uh, you know, basically describing to Cooper that the caskets make sound, they sing, and we might even have had some odd sound effects or music or whatever yeah. to accompany that. It, it could have been an incredible scene. I imagine it was cut just simply for time. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the script, it says Cooper finds this fascinating. So he, he, he see, to me, mm-hmm. I t- take that as he takes joy out of this caretaker seeing the world this way. <laughs> well, he puts yeah, his own to, to listen needless, to Needless to say, <laughs> it's a notion he finds fascinating. <laughs> well, and the script describes him putting his ear to the ground to listen. So, you know, it would have been that would have been a great scene too to see Kyle McLaughlin as Cooper you know I could just imagine you know that boyish kind of enthusiastic you know response he has to things he just bend over and put his ear to the ground to see if he can hear the casket (laughs) oh yeah he's spotting ducks in this episode he's definitely (laughs) (laughs) those are all the unseen scenes Uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention I think it's a hall of fame uh, scene which is uh Coop and Hawk sharing the beer at the end, which, you know, John, I think you've gone back and referenced this multiple times when we're, we're talking about the soul and what can happen to the soul. And mm-hmm. Yeah, a walking soul yeah. that give life to the mind and the body, a dream soul that wanders. And then Cooper says, mm. where, where, where do they wander? And Hawk says, far away places. Oh, it's so great, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that really is. That really is. Yeah. It feels like it could definitely relate to season three, though. I feel like we could definitely see wandering souls and yeah. we're going to faraway places. Is the last it, it, the last place that uh, Cooper and Laura carry? Cooper, Laura, Carrie. Richard and Carrie. Richard and No, Cooper and Carrie, <laughs> Laura. <laughs> Richard. Uh, they seem like they've gone away to faraway places. It's not Twin Peaks as we know it. Yep. Yeah. Oh, that fits very well. Yeah, the whole idea of a, a perhaps a wandering soul. For every one of these community rewatch, I always like to say, are there clues that Leland was the killer? Hmm. Well, <laughs> we yeah, kind of talked about is. it with Leland falling on the casket. 
I mean, is that some kind of? I mean, it seems it could almost imply that he has a sexual relationship with her. I See, I never when I first saw, I never. No, I not thought, when I first saw, but yeah, looking back, looking now, back, I guess, yeah, it's kind of weird. And and then not only that, but Sarah then says she go. What does she say? She, she has said, a great line. She has a great. She line. says, Leland, Leland, do you have to ruin this too? Yeah, ruin this too. What else he ruined? I think there are potentially clues here. I mean, yeah. I don't think they knew. Uh, certainly, Harley didn't know. Uh, that Leland was going to be the killer, but oh, they really did give us some good information here that, in retrospect, fits perfectly yeah. with, with and, the story. And one other one is that you know we were just talking about Cooper and Hawk, and then you have Leland on the dance floor, and so it's like at the same time they're talking about the spirits. Leland is possessed by a spirit, and we have him dancing, and I actually feel like he kind of crouches down a little bit like a midget in some ways. I don't know, it's just the way he kind of like crawls up into a ball a little bit. It makes me think of that first time we see the little man from another place yeah. where he's like, he's hmm. shaking and then he kind of turns around. So I don't know, there's, to me that's almost like it could be, and that's what, I mean, that, they cheat and that's what they say in season two is Leland danced uh, compulsively mm, sure. and stuff. Like the little man. Like the yeah. little man, yeah. This might be a good time to mention in the long tradition of uh, taking a friend or loved one through the show, I have my mom uh, going through it and uh, she's at she just watched the season two opener, and wow. as far as <laughs> I said, uh, any ideas on who done it? She was like, "Am I supposed to?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then the other thing was that uh, in a text, she said, "Wow, oh, that Leland guy's a weirdo, huh?" Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I think I'm getting a lot of text messages when that that episode happens. <laughs> Oh, I can't wait. You got to tell everybody about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you should be documenting this. You, I should, know. you should be on Reddit, Andy, and document like uh, Andy's mom watches <laughs> Twin Peaks. <laughs> I thought about sitting her down with this microphone just yeah, asking go. questions. Oh, <laughs> you know, uh, people, people have done that. Uh, the people who did like the original Twin Peaks podcast like recorded, I think, their parents or something, like watching either Lonely <laughs> Souls or maybe Firewalk with me. I can't remember which. But like their parents like didn't know that they were being recorded. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh. Man. Yeah. So my mom hates Twin Peaks. I don't even know if she's ever. <laughs> I don't know if she's ever seen a whole show. Maybe she's seen one, but she thinks it's like, you know, she's Christian and she thinks it's like the Devil's Show or something like that. To this, not, like right now, she will not allow. She does not want me to mention the word Twin Peaks. So I'm now an adult. <laughs> I have a Twin Peaks <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I have a podcast, a weekly podcast, and she does not want me to ever mention the word wow. Twin Peaks. But at the same time, she didn't like. Say I couldn't watch Twin Peaks. It's kind of funny. She hated it, but she kind of like knew I loved it and it was obsessed. It was with on the show. ABC. What could be wrong? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> the Disney Channel, right? It wasn't Disney then. I yeah, it's true. It wasn't Disney then. Do we look at episode three any differently now that we've seen season three? In in certain ways, like I had not watched really any of the original two seasons since watching season three. I guess there weren't like specific things I picked up on in terms of like clues and who done it and stuff like that. But it was more of watching all of the characters in this episode who ended up returning for season three, which was a huge chunk of them. Hmm. Um, knowing where all of them end up so many years later, uh, it was kind of like reviewing the contents of a time capsule or something, you know, lives lived and memories remembered. That's that whole bit. We, we see interactions between Ed and Norma, uh, the way Jacoby is now versus the way he is later. Yeah. Um, even Sheriff Truman, even though his parts were played out off screen in the new season, we still get to find out what happened to him. It was just, it was kind of mind blowing to me to, to be like going back in time and seeing all these people so much younger and knowing what happened to them. Yeah. 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 
I thought it was interesting that, you know, we're back with the, the Cooper Hawk and then Leland and, you know, Leland's so upset and Cooper comes over and Hawk goes over to him to help him. And uh, Cooper says, let's take you home. And Leland says, home. And of course, uh, that makes me think of fun. like season three again. It's like, oh, Cooper's it's taking your home. Yeah. And, and like, there is, a, I mean, home is brought up many times. Like the home is seen But it's so in your home. And, we, you know, right. Cooper's essentially bringing the murderer back home to kill again. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Cooper's uh, fault. It's Cooper's yeah, fault. <laughs> the uh, pod had a couple episodes back, the uh, Someone is My House art book. Kristen mentioned how much the home focuses on mm. his artwork. Yeah. Yes. Yep. It's so true. I mean, you look at that, his work, and it's... Yeah, the snowmen and the homes, and it was like the weird... He His thoughts were, what's behind those walls? What's the dark secret of, like, a... A suburban, you know, yeah. uh, neighborhood. It's kind of creepy. I do have just a short behind-the-scenes piece of information. Yeah. Uh, you know, we interviewed Grace Zabriskie, so, well, you know, about all of what she'd done in Twin Peaks. But she mentioned this episode in particular, and she talks about how when they were doing the cemetery scene, she's being escorted through the cemetery to the to the funeral. She says, I remember being hit with absolute certainty that in all her vulnerable grief, Sarah would still be trying to smoke a cigarette. Mm -hmm. And she really wanted to do that. Tina Rathborn, who was the director, said that's a bit too much. And oh, uh, Grace Zabriskie yeah. said, you know, I think to myself – 50 or 60 more of a bit much is, and that's what happened to the series. And so she's basically implying that it was right there that they were taking maybe the conservative approach instead of the, you know, more eccentric approach. You can imagine if Lynch had been directing it. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and she had said, I, I, Sarah should be smoking. And, um, you know, Lynch would have had a pile of cigarette, butts yes. at the, you know, at her foot mm -hmm. and, and focused on it for a while. But anyway, it's just a small story. Uh, it's an interesting story. There's lots of places you can point to as the series kind of shifted direction and became maybe a little more networky, a little more palatable. Um, certainly far, far away from what happens later in the second season. But that's just one. I have a special request for uh, the Twin Peaks on Rap Boys here. Oh, yeah? Uh, so once you get to uh, that that portion of season two that he just mentioned, I will do every episode with you because I'm one of those weird people who loves <laughs> that whole portion of the show. Because of, because of how strange everything is about that whole part, I'm just like, yeah. It's what, episode, what part is this now? What did I He's miss? <laughs> oh yeah yeah like evelyn marsh flannel cooper oh you're like, for that you know, I'm yeah yeah, yeah that wow if, if, oh, if man, brian had his way pleasure. we would skip those episodes i know i told them well, yeah we could skip those <laughs> no how about like do do one episode just kind of like encapsulating that batch and i'll yeah. be there with you I, we are doing every episode i don't listen to brian oh, yeah, okay, okay, we're doing, yeah we're doing them all we're doing them all we're going for the full I, thing i gotta jump in here this just occurred to me you guys were talking about that new lynch art book that just came out right yes and yeah yeah i just bought it too and i was looking through it and i totally forgot this but this all connects um if you look at the um, filmography in the back of that book where it lists, you know, everything that Lynch did, you know, from Six Men Getting Sick all the way. When you get to the Twin Peaks section, the Twin Peaks of 1990 and 1991, it says Twin Peaks, 17 episodes. Yeah. And then it, and then it continues on. And if you look at Twin Peaks: The Return, it lists 18, you know, hour parts. And really? it. it I, I looked at that, and um, it struck me. It really did, because I don't think it was necessarily a mistake. And I wonder huh. if Lynch said, 
I am not going to want to take credit for more than 17 episodes. And I, I, you know, I don't know if it was, you know, out of just like, I don't deserve credit or whether or not it was, I reject a certain number of episodes. And so for me, only 17 episodes are legitimate, quote unquote. Again, I'm reading a lot into it and I don't want to make any implication that that it went one way or another, but it really, really struck me that he listed just 17 episodes there. I tried to figure out how you get to 17 episodes. So I wrote, well, let's say all the way through Bob kills Maddie, which Lynch directed. So I think that's, um, I I think that's 14 episodes. And then if you take the last episode that's that he directed, um, the last hour, I consider it a separate individual episode. That's 15. So I thought maybe all the way through the part where Leland is revealed to be and die maybe that i I can't i'd have to go back and count them up i'm trying to figure out how you get to the 17 episodes no i think you're right if you you get to 16 where uh, where uh you figure out who killed uh, that leland is revealed and then then you get the last episode that's 17 yeah because it kind of feels like an end to all that well i have you know and then of course there's a two-hour season two premiere i got to add it up i don't know all right but the reason why i bring it up is is you're talking about you know, Sam's talking about um, really liking that section of season two, which, you know, some people like more than others. Lynch has said uh, in the past that he thought season two really got, you know, off track. And I right. wonder if this is such a minor thing, maybe, but it, it, this is the kind of thing. I go after. Sh- you're on the right if, show to do this. <laughs> you know, whether or not that's again, the 17 episodes, something is a mystery. And I would love for that mystery to be resolved someday to, to understand what Lynch is thinking there. I don't think it's just a mistake. I think it's deliberate. Hmm. The numbers so, are important. Anyway, I have opinions about this as well. Um, <laughs> so I, th- I think you're onto something with the count that you had with the 17 episodes. And I, th- I think my feeling would be that he is intentionally leaving out all these other episodes. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because, uh, shortly before the new season came out, um, in 2017, he did a piece for like Vanity Fair, or at least they covered him. And they were, they were taking bits out of an interview where someone was asking him like, well, Hey, Twin Peaks now, how do you feel about it then? And he basically said something to the effect of season two sucked. Hmm. Um, and I know he's probably generalizing because season two is huge, but I, I, I think he's probably implying these other 13-ish episodes that he's not counting in the end of his book. Um, this, this kind of, for me, paints Lynch in a negative light. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You know, we all know ABC meddled. Uh, he had to reveal the murder earlier than he wanted. And then... Um, things got a little out of hand. Uh, but according to interviews with other people like Evelyn Marsh, or, or really, I guess, Annette McCarthy, who played Evelyn Marsh, um, and some other smaller cast members who appeared in mid-season two, um, Lynch was still around. Uh, he was approving casting. Of course, he was acting as Gordon Cole. He, I guess, had a, a general level of awareness, um, at the very least, of what was happening in the show. Now, if I'm Lynch and I'm upset at ABC, uh, for doing what they did, and I'm still maintaining a certain level of involvement, but I'm not involving myself enough to fix things that I'm watching that I think are wrong. And then 25 years later, the show comes back, and I talk shit about a bunch of people that were still making the series, but I wasn't really helping with for whatever reason. I think that's kind of poor form, and hmm. it doesn't really sit very well with me. 
I definitely think there's some truth to what you're saying. I th I think I mean there's no question that Lynch is involved in the later half of the second season because he does return as Gordon Cole, so he's on the set. And I mean, if you have David Lynch on the set, clearly he's going to be an influence on the story. I think if you look at it, you can see the the, the quality of the show improve when Lynch is with certainty mm. a presence. So the question is, where was it that he was less involved? And I'm not trying to excuse him or anything, because I think you're making a good point. But I do believe there is a section of season two where Lynch is really, really hands-off. And so is Mark Frost. People forget that. Mark Frost was right, gone, yeah. too. Yeah. So um, so it's up to Harley. And I have great sympathy for Harley. And I, I think Harley Payton's a great guy. But he was trying to basically manage a circus by himself. It was just impossible. And he was getting notes from Lynch that were, you know, contrary to what he was physically able to do with the show but there was a section of the series where lynch was really removed and i don't know if that was in the scripting and it, it went down a path that he just didn't really even know anything about so again without excusing him i think he he just sort of skips over that section we may never know for sure um, well, that's fine. He he can not like it. That that's totally okay with me. It's it's really the the negativity he's still casting towards something that happened, you know, a quarter century ago. I, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I just feel like like at least in in any profession I would ever get involved in, I feel like it'd just be a bad idea to talk bad about your peers, even if they did a terrible job. Well, you know what? Lynch mm. remembers things again. There's no not excuse, but Lynch remembers things the way he wants to remember things. <laughs> yeah. and he yeah. remembers. I I truly believe this. He remembers the pilot, and he remembers Firewalk with Me, and he remembers season three. Yeah, because those were all films or productions that were shot on location. Does that sure. influence the way you guys feel about that particular section of season? Like, does it? invalidated or does it not matter to you or you know whatever what are, what are your thoughts for me i mean i've said this to harley i there's there's things i enjoy about every single episode and i feel like there's nuggets of of enjoyment for each thing i can separate myself from the people making the show to enjoying what i do like about the show i guess i feel yeah. like i can separate that yeah. I, I don't think anybody working on this is perfect <laughs> For me, like I, I, you know, as much as I kind of groan about some of them, I think like Ben's right. There's something good in all of them. I think that in all the characters are, are it's quirky, it's fun. You you just don't take it too seriously, and I think it's all canon. All it's all yeah. part of the story, but it's side stories. It's like the main mission's over, and now we're just focusing on these little loose ends until they bring us all back together near the end. There. I know on uh, one of the DVDs, Mark Frost talks about he wishes he had uh, Wyndham Earl had come into it quicker, and he wishes maybe he had got the at least the Cooper storyline going fat quicker and stuff. Mm. Yeah, but that's what I was going to mention. I mean, they're put behind the eight ball. They're you know they're without you know a main thrust. They've lost principal actors, and you know we've seen. I think we've all seen probably a lot of episodes that have gone beyond two seasons, but have had a sophomore slump. And you know that's a big what if is you know what if. You know, they gave him another season, and Lynch kind of went, you know, all right, I, I didn't like what we did here, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to return to my show. And you wonder, you know, could it have 
you know, climbed back up again as they started to get more ideas about an overall direction. Yeah. Yeah. I think about like the model they do now for television, you know, they did seven, eight episodes for the first season of Twin Peaks. And if they had done the same thing, eight episodes, it would have gone to 16 and it would have been the reveal of the killer and catching the killer or whatever. And then you could have waited and done a third season and they would have been fresh eyes and it would have, if they could have done that model, I wonder if Lynch and Frost would have been able to work things out better. You know, I think that they actually the plan for season two was three major plot lines. The first would have been the resolution of the Laura Palmer storyline. That would have been the first third. The second third was supposed to be the Cooper Audrey romance, which mm. was going to be the major storyline right. that would go through. And then Wyndham Earl was going to come in and dominate the last third and, of course, put Audrey in peril. Um, yeah. Because of for lots of reasons, the Audrey Cooper romance fell through. All the B stories had to be elevated and sustain the story between Laura Palmer and Wyndham Earl. So you get this slump and you get things like the Civil War storyline and the Little Nicky storyline, which got too much screen time. They should have been the comedic behind you know yeah. simmering you know backstory yeah, like, while we C-plot. focused on cooper audrey and the drama there poor harley payton i mean honestly he had to maintain this hit show with 40 different characters had speaking parts and all of them need to be addressed they all had to have something to do and right. um it was just almost an impossible task and so I would certainly agree if Lynch is critiquing that, that he didn't understand the dynamic that was there because um, no one, no one, Lynch could not have sustained 22 episodes of season two if the entire plot line of one, one of the main stories was scrapped and they just had to you know, go with, with scraps. Essentially. Yeah. So wrapping up episode three, do we have any final thoughts at all about this episode? One last scene, just the, uh, when we're recruiting to the Bookhouse Boys, the Truman speech of the evil in the woods, and that, like, it seems to hint that, like, it's some sort of Faustian bargain, that mm. we get our nice Twin Peaks, but there is a price, and it's whatever's kind of out there, you know? Yeah. That would have been a great direction to go. That, that's open mm-hmm. for so many possibilities. I never had thought about that before. I like it. Yeah, that would have been awesome. I wish that uh, season three we had gotten the Bookhouse Boys. I wonder yeah. if they still are around. Yep. <laughs> Fighting evil in the woods. Hey, men before us, men that come mm-hmm. after, you know? <laughs> right. Or when we're gone, I think is what he says. And in, in this episode, they, they, we, we see Bernard Ronald, who's an, uh, Jacques' brother, and he, you know, they're they're interrogating him about selling drugs. Rewatching this, I didn't realize he uh, Bernard was the janitor at the roadhouse, and all I could think of is so did so did uh, Bernard actually sweep the floors? <laughs> sure he did. Uh, yeah, sure he yeah, did. We, yeah, yeah. We would watch Bernard just sweep, sweep for three, ten minutes. Green onions. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much for being on the show. Uh, I'd like to start with you, John, and then Sam and then Andy. Uh, John, can you tell us how we can uh, follow you? You can find me on Twitter. That's really the main place. And it's uh, at ThornWhip, T-H-O-R-N-E-W-I-P. And then, of course, you can find me through Blue Rose Mag. 
uh, as well. And it was just recent. It wasn't that long ago that issue uh, nine came out, which is so Fantastic. awesome. And uh, another great magazine. You've got a great article about a strong sender in there. And I cannot believe you got Harry Gomez to uh, interview <laughs> there. It's a it's a great issue. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. That was the first uh, interview uh, that Harry Goaz has done. Um, that was exclusively about Twin Peaks. Um, and I, I'll just share the story with you that he said no to us uh, when we when we approached him, and he said he wasn't going to do the interview. And Scott Ryan, to his credit, <laughs> convinced convinced him in about thirty seconds to do oh it. Oh my gosh! And uh, he said, "Okay, I'll do it." For me, that was that was just you know, I mean, that was kind of a dream come true because some of these actors I had always wanted to talk to or you know interview or just even meet he was one of those reclusive hard to find guys and we, we got him so we're real happy about well, that congratulations it's a great interview and so i definitely good. recommend everybody pick up issue nine and sam how can we follow you uh well you can find me on the reddit uh of course um our webpage is at uh it's www.reddit.com slash r that's the letter r slash twin peaks uh, my username is iswitt is wit uh we also are on uh twitter at at Twin Peaks Reddit. Nice. And Andy? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter as well. Abuda, A-B-U-D-D-A-H. I am also a uh, host on a uh, pop culture collecting type show uh, podcast called The Repacked Podcast. Uh, just put those in any of your uh, podcast uh, applications should do it. And I just wanted to touch on our Miss Audrey Horn herself. Sherilyn Fenn had a uh, horrible fire and she's got a GoFundMe going. If it's still going when you hear this, um, just find Sherilyn on Twitter, and she'll have the uh, link to her GoFundMe. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Thanks so much. Yeah. Music! Did you know her, Hawk? Flora? Caught her speeding a couple of times and better talk me out of the ticket. It wasn't hard. Laura Palmer didn't have to die. It's wrong. It makes me mad. Everything dies. Do you believe in the soul? Several. More than one? Blackfeet legend. Waking souls that give life to the mind and the body. A dream soul that wanders. Dream souls. Where do they wander? Far away places. Anywhere USA. The land of the dead. Is that where Laura is? Laura's in the ground, Agent Cooper. That's the only thing I'm sure of. Dolora. Godspeed. Okay. I'm Amy Shields. I'm Mark Frost. Hi, I'm Kimmy Robertson. So our Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book, is currently out at bluerosemag.com. It is $19.99, so get your copy today as supplies are very limited and will be running out very soon. So if you haven't got your copy today, 
Go to bluerosemag.com today. Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive.